Hey all you listeners, welcome to The Wonder of It All Season 3, your host, my dad, Ben Brewster. Come on, Pops. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode in Season 3 of The Wonder of It All Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in again, wherever you are, whatever's going on with your life. I, I hope that you know that you are blessed and that you are loved beyond your wildest imagination. That's part of what it means to live in wonder. Today, I am very excited to welcome Andrew Brewster. Now, that last name may be familiar. That may strike you as, uh, hey, I've heard that before. Well, let's just put it out there. This is my dad. And he and my mom uh, recently moved down here to Louisiana, to Northwest Louisiana. They've been in Ohio for 30 plus years. So we had to rescue them. We had to get them out. We had to get them down to the South so they could reacquaint themselves with sunshine and a slower pace of life and the best food and football around. Well, also joining them is my one of my aunts and my sister and a couple of nephews. So We've had quite an influx of family recently, and so that's going to be really interesting to see how all this plays out, but I think it's going to be a good thing. So let's get with, let's get into it today. Uh, should I call you dad or Andrew? What do you prefer? Whatever you would like, Ben. All right. Well, dad, Andrew, <laughs> um, you graduated from Oklahoma Christian in 1968. And uh, you really jumped into full-time ministry after graduation, but your career in ministry started before graduation. You started, you were preaching before you graduated from college. So as you look back to, what's that, 50, 55 years, 50? I'm not very good at math. That's a long time. Let's say over 50 years. Uh, you've been doing full-time ministry. You recently, quote, retired. I know y'all can't see this, but I, I did my fingers like, so-called retired, um, parentheses, uh, italics, uh, because I don't know if ministers ever truly retire. But talk a little bit about what your life's been like the last month or two months. So what, what's been going on with this transition? Oh, it's been very fascinating in a lot of ways. You never know what, what the Lord has in mind. It's just a matter of us walking by faith and having the great hope that we have and, of course, living a life that reflects the love that we need for our Lord and for others. But uh, just backing a little bit, uh, you mentioned 1968. That was the year that uh, yeah, Lauren and I, your mom, we got married that year. So we were married uh, for, uh, what is this, 2021? Mm -hmm. So figure that out. So it's 53 years mm -hmm. that we've been married. The two years before we were married, I served as youth minister for the Southwest congregation in Oklahoma City. I had a youth group of about 40 to 50 kids. So it was a, quite an active ministry back in those days. Now, did you do that while you were in college? Yes. Yes. Uh, I went to school during the week and on uh, Sundays I taught uh, teen classes and then uh, same thing on Wednesday, I taught classes on Wednesday, and then one other night a week, I had uh, special activities with the kids, and then we had weekend programs. Uh, Southwest back in those days was uh, close to um, the stockyards in Oklahoma City, 
and they had uh, we had two worships on Sunday morning and two Bible schools. Uh, so we started at eight and finished at noon. And then we started again about five in the afternoon with Bible classes. And then we had another worship at six. And I taught classes all up all during that time. So my first time to preach was uh, when in 1960 as a teenager. I delivered my first sermon. Uh, I got done and thought, man, that was hard and that was so long. <laughs> my mother told me later, she says, well, you only preached for eight minutes, but mm. it seemed like an eternity. But I bet it was a solid eight minutes. I bet it was good. <laughs> I don't know. It was interesting. Actually, um, I just finished reading a book, uh, Must the Young Die Too, by Sawyer. Um, and that was a pretty popular book back in the, the 50s and 60s for young people to read. And, uh, and there was one, there was a section of it that really touched me, and I used that as an introduction. So so I still remember what I did even back then. But, Do you have the notes from that? No. No. But that's that's pretty cool that you remember what you talked about. Back in 1960, your very first sermon, you're a teenager. Um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, we did um, also during that time and being in college, we had uh, a group called the Harvesters, uh, which were young preachers studying to be preachers. And we did uh, we did youth rallies about once a month somewhere, uh, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas. I don't think we went. I don't think we did any in Arkansas. But anyway, we uh, we did youth rallies, and uh, I enjoyed doing that. Uh, and then uh, during the summer, I did, uh, when I wasn't working with Southwest and, you know, doing activities with them, uh, I had time off to preach in youth route or uh, gospel meetings, as they called back then. Mm -hmm. Today, we think of it as, as a, some type of a revival or rally. And uh, I traveled all over East Texas, Marshall, Appleby, Longview, Garrison, I don't even remember it in the western part of Texas. I did several out there, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a, a pretty typical um, schedule structure for Churches of Christ during that time. You you mentioned uh, teaching class, preaching. Typically, there was a Sunday morning worship, Sunday class, Sunday morning classes, Sunday night worship, Wednesday night worship. There were gospel meetings throughout the years. Throughout the year, there was youth rallies and and what I hear you say, you did all of that. Yeah, I was involved in all that. And then in 68, when Lorna and I got married, we we moved to uh, Cape Cod and worked with a church that was, uh, uh, let's see, what was the name of that little, uh, uh, I can see it, Falmouth, which was on the uh, southeast, no, southwest part of Cape Cod. And from there, we moved the church to um, to the center of Cape Cod uh, and helped it to grow there. But we didn't stay too long uh, there. We moved over to Plymouth and started at work there. And then from there, we moved uh, into North Attleboro, where uh, Tom Marshall had just started to work. And we joined forces so that more than one of us was working. We could work together as a team. So the marshals and us worked together to plant the uh, Attleboro Church. So you uh, you went from Oklahoma to Massachusetts, two very different cultures. 
I mean, we talk about we've, we've made jokes recently about y'all moving from Ohio to Louisiana and the difference in the cultures. But that had to be a major cultural transition. Yeah, more so for Lorna, because I in 1960, that year I first preached my first sermon that summer, we spent um, in Maine, the state of Maine. My brother was stationed uh, at the Brunswick Air Station there. He was in, uh, he's one of the radar guys. And we spent uh, the summer with him. Uh, he was struggling some with life and uh, just difficulties. And so mother and dad decided, well, that we'd go up. So dad, uh, we had a 59 Chevy that dad had just bought brand new. Well, it wasn't quite brand new because this was 1960. So about a year old. And uh, we we drove for 34 hours. Mm. from Oklahoma to Maine and uh, mother found a place to rent. We, we rented a small house or a small apartment there and we stayed with my brother most of the summer and Herb Morang was the preacher at Brunswick. Uh, and he was an interesting man. I loved it. I got more involved in doing things to help him out. So I had a fun summer. So when we moved to North Attleboro, part of the reason we moved, or not to, to move to Cape Cod, part of the reason I chose New England is because of the summer I spent there. And at that time, among the, the uh, non-instrumental churches of Christ, there was probably 30 congregations maybe. And so I knew that there was a, a need to plant churches that uh, was a little bit stronger and focus on Jesus than what I was seeing in the religious community of, of New England. So for me, it, it, it was a transition different. Yes, but I'd already had a taste of it. Lorna, I thought it was a little more difficult for her, uh, transitioning because people, uh, they react different. They're not open and friendly like they are say here in Louisiana. So you, you get that, that type of arrangement. Well, she was, she grew up in Southeast Kentucky, which I imagine is a world of difference from Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Well, yeah, she grew up in, uh, you know, the Eastern part of, uh, Kentucky. There was all mountains there and you get to Cape Cod and all you see is ocean. Mm. So anyway, both of us fell in love with the ocean. We loved the, uh, eight to nine years that we spent in new England because we were close to the ocean the whole time. Mm. But the ministry changed from, uh, she was very active with me in the youth ministry when we were engaged. She went, she taught the girls classes and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. we became a team before we got married. And then when we moved to Cape Cod, you know, uh, we were pretty much a team involved in evangelism and planting churches. So we went from youth ministry to church planting and then uh, we kind of transitioned uh, in the 70s. The uh, church in Newport, Rhode Island had been devastated. Uh, the government had decided to move the uh, Navy out of Newport. So the uh, Newport at one time had 19 to 20 ships stationed there in and out of Newport, out of the harbor there. Still has a war college still located there. So there was a lot going on. But uh, Rhode Island uh, ended up being on the receiving end of a lot of cutbacks. And so uh, the base was moved down to Virginia. The ships all went down to Virginia. 
So we went in, a church went from uh, 200 plus down to about 30 people. So we helped to, uh, we transitioned from playing churches to reviving the Newport church. And it went from about 25 to 30 in attendance to just over a hundred when we left. And then from there, we moved to a campus ministry in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. So really, it sounds like, um, okay, so you, you started off in youth ministry and it's, it's very fascinating to see how many, I don't know if this still is true or not, but it used to be so many preachers at one point, they were youth ministers. They, that's where they started out. Right. And so then you transitioned into church planting in the New England area, and then you go to a campus ministry, and then you've been in located work with various established churches since then. So I think it would be fair to say you've just about seen it all. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a lot. You know, a lot of changes, a lot of different directions in churches. I had to come to grips with my own uh, upbringing in, in uh, traditional uh, churches that were very uh, set in ways and uh, formats and traditions into every culture. For instance, going from Oklahoma to Cape Cod, uh, Oklahoma, you know, you normally wore, when I was growing up in the 50s, you normally wore a coat and tie. Uh, to wait on the table, for instance, uh, when you got to churches of Christ do communion once a week, you're right. talking about people that would go up and stand around the table and pass the trays. Yeah. You would march okay. in and you would march out. You had assignments. It was very well organized. Uh, when you got to, to, uh, Cape Cod, Cape Cod, Cape Cod at that time, less than had less than a hundred thousand residents on the entire Cape. But in the summertime, because it was a res uh, recreation vacation area, you went from, say, 100,000 to 300 to 400,000 people, uh, especially on weekends because the beaches were crowded. And we were located in a very visible location. We were having to rent facilities. But people sometimes would walk by our location going to the beach, and they were dressed for the beach. We had a sign out front that said, come visit. Mm -hmm. So it was not uncommon to see someone walk in with beach attire, uh, usually with you know some type of towels or covering on, but they were going to the beach. They might come in and worship with us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, I probably adapted quicker to that than, than probably Lorna coming from Southeast Kentucky, which is, uh, you know, really strict and, and a lot of things they do there. So and there's also not an ocean nearby. That's right. You know, that people, people were not accustomed to going <laughs> to the beach. So uh, there's, you know, and then, you know, every place you went to, uh, Oklahoma at the time was transitioning uh, more to um, being open uh, to restaurants serving, you know, beer and alcohol. But every restaurant there did. And I remember the first time that, uh, that an elder and deacon from one of our sponsoring congregations, because we had to raise our own money. Uh, the church there didn't have money for us. And so we raised money to go. And I mean, the first time one of the elders, one of the deacons came up to visit, we took them uh, to one of the normal places to eat. And uh, the elder made a comment. He says, you shouldn't be eating here. There's a bar here. 
And, yeah. and already after just, a, you know, three or four months, we were accustomed to seeing that, that difference from, you know, Oklahoma and East Texas or West Texas and, and uh, Cape Cod. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, it varies throughout the country. So let's talk about what you have seen in five plus decades serving in full-time ministry um, within the churches of Christ context. As you look at everything that you've seen and experienced and you consider the future, and we know the bad news is out there. We know the statistics show that uh, as a whole, churches of Christ are declining rapidly. Uh, the numbers keep going down. So we know that. What do you see as causes for optimism for the future? I think one of the things that I'm seeing as I visit around and and I'm able to do that. I mean, you still have pockets that are very uh, unchangeable. They have always done it a certain way. Uh, the pandemic has really helped for us to rethink how we're going to launch out and, and serve the people around us. But what I'm seeing, though, is a greater emphasis, at least among the, the ministers that I come in contact, a greater emphasis on presenting Jesus to a community and not a set of rules. Mm. And, you know, when, when you think about what Jesus did, you know, Jesus stopped everything. He says, look, there's two important things here. You love God and you love others. And that needs to be the motivation. So whatever traditions we establish, whatever rules or customs that we're going to follow must show a love for God and a love for others. And that means at times, uh, for, for instance, New England, being in, in the states of New England, we did not have the, what I grew up with in Oklahoma with a standard uh, Sunday evening and Wednesday evening. Things were, were done differently because the people, uh, the areas I worked in were primarily other than for Newport, Rhode Island, areas I worked in were primarily people that are accustomed to uh, a lot of uh, factory type job jobs. And so they worked three shifts. We had to rethink the hours that we met. We had to rethink how we were going to meet, what we were going to do to, to help people to, to come to know Jesus more than, than, okay, you know, today's Sunday morning, a certain time you have to be here, you know, it's Sunday night, you got to do this. And, all these things that are customs and traditions we have, we're having to reevaluate those. So what I'm seeing now, the pandemic has caused us to challenge, challenge us to rethink, you know, how do we meet? How often do we meet? Where do we meet? Uh, what do we do um, to help people in the midst of great crisis? Last year, uh, I did 157 funerals. Mm. Uh, those funerals for the majority of part were people who were affected by the pandemic, uh, by the, uh, the virus that was going around. Uh, I stood at open graves with, with, uh, I remember one of the, the nicest older gentlemen I ever met. I stood with him. He had a son on each side of it, holding him up because he could just barely walk. The snow was coming down. This was right before Christmas last year. Uh, 
and uh, we were burying his daughter and his son-in-law, her husband, mm -hmm. all because of the pandemic and both of them had uh, caught the virus and both had died. Mm -hmm. And he stood with his two sons and they had to hold him up and no one else was allowed in that cemetery because of the restrictions. Uh, so all of a sudden you're looking at life differently. We're challenged, you know, how did I minister to this man? What could I do to help him and his, his uh, two sons get through this? Uh, how did I, you know, you're finding yourself having to do things. The answer is still Jesus. Uh, Jesus walked up to a funeral procession on one occasion and there was a widow there and her son, her only son had died being a widow in that culture. The son was the key to her, to any type of inheritance. What did that woman need? We see it immediately as the miracle. He gave life back to the son. Uh, I think you have to look at it even deeper than that because he not only gave back the son that she loved, but he gave her back her entire life because in that culture, she needed the son to live and to survive. So you, you, you see Jesus responding to people uh, and helping them by meeting their needs. I see a greater emphasis, at least among the congregations that I've spoken at and I come in contact with, of doing activities that actually respond to, to the needs of people in a given community. Not every community has the same issues. Every community you live in is different. Uh, I'm just now moving here, of course, as you mentioned, uh, I guess I'll be in some type of retirement plan here. But, <laughs> oh, but, we're going to keep you busy. Yeah. But anyway, I still don't know the community. Yeah. And this community is not the Champaign-Urbana community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Champaign-Urbana community where we lived. It's not Dayton, Ohio. It's not Newport, Rhode Island. It's not Cape Cod. It's, you know, you begin to think through all this. Every community is different. When we were in Illinois at the University of Illinois, that's a whole different community. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an academic community uh, that, you know, there were over 30,000 students at that time at the university and Urbana didn't have that many people as a population. Mm -hmm. Champaign-Urbana probably only had 100,000 people. So a, a good third of those, uh, you know, were students. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you this. So, because sometimes there's an objection to, well, we can't just, uh, that sounds good. We're just going to give people Jesus. We're going to say, love God, love others. But someone will say, well, there's got to be an order to what we do or everything's going to be chaotic. So what do you say? Um, because, you know, when we grow up and we're being told, okay, you got to do this particular thing, this particular way, um, you know, um, whether it's um, how we how we sing, uh, how we do the communion, how we do prayers. Uh, what do you say to someone who says, well, there's got to be some rules there? Well, I, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a, a, a congregation in Tulsa, Oklahoma, no longer exists. Uh, it served a, a purpose. It served God well. There were probably two dozen of us that grew up in that church that became preachers. But today, the, the, that congregation has now blended into other congregations. So 
the, the building, I'm not even sure the building still exists. But anyway, I remember back in oh, the mid-50s, and I wasn't very old at the time, but I still remember. We used to have communion uh, at the end of worship. It was the last thing we did on Sunday mornings. And uh, the elders, uh, and I don't know all the reason, because just being a kid, I didn't follow everything. But they decided to have communion first because they wanted a better emphasis on Jesus. Uh, there were people left the church because of the change. Were they the ones that always came late and so they missed communion? No, you never miss communion. <laughs> no, no, you know, y'all, every church has those folks that come, you know, they come in a little late. And when you do something like that, you put communion at the beginning, then it's like, wait a second, what just happened? Right. But, you know, I just grew up seeing changes like that and take place. Uh, the song leader we had, we didn't have worship, we just had song leader. And, and Brother Christensen was, uh, he had this beautiful Irish voice and he could sing anything written. And uh, so we were always having new music. But at the same time, uh, there was a, a hindrance of going to new songs. I remember by the time I got college age, there was uh, some new music out, new songs out. And uh, the elders didn't want, didn't, wouldn't let anyone teach them because they said, well, we have uh, 200 songs in our songbook. We've got plenty. So you're, that's a constant but there's always those that don't want to change, but our culture is constantly changing. Hmm. I mean, uh, I just came out of a church where I served as an elder for, for over 25 years and a preacher for some 30 years. And we were to the point that no one wore coat and ties. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the guys did. And uh, we were to the point where, uh, you know, the different roles were evolving differently. It was not uncommon for us to have, because of, of, of who, several of our women in the congregation held important positions in the community. I'm talking about both government, you know, in the court system and also in the business world. And it was not uncommon for one of them to get up on Sunday morning and welcome everybody and encourage them to participate. Uh, you know, well, that's a, that's a big hot button topic. And sure. Um, not just in churches of Christ, but in most uh, conservative mainline uh, denominations that we see in the United States. And somebody hearing that, that the initial res response rebuttal to that is, well, are we letting culture drive the church? So how do you respond to that? I don't see culture as driving. I see us using the gifts of people. It's just like, if you're in a church and you, you're going to do a Bible reading, who do you want to read? You want someone who's capable of reading. You're looking for a gift, someone who has that gift of being able to read so people can understand. Why would you ask someone who had trouble reading, maybe dyslexic and, and they're having struggle when they read? Why ask them to be embarrassed by a lack of uh, good reading skills? You're going to use the best. Uh, you just don't let anyone lead your singing. No church just lets anyone lead singing because some people like me can't sing. Mm -hmm. So you know we don't <laughs> want me yeah. leading a song. You're going to go all sorts of directions. So uh, to me, it's not about the cultural. It's about using the people that you have and the talents that God has given to them.
Mm-hmm. And if a person can do something better than someone else, I'm going to let them. Uh, we did a messenger every week. I didn't write anything for the message, which is a bulletin. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's just a newsletter. Uh, we had a couple of ladies that did all the writing. Mm-hmm. I didn't do any of the writing for it. Why? Because they had a real gift to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of them had backgrounds in English and they could write. Um, there were a lot of things that we did that, you know, I'd say to, to whoever had the gift to do it, do it. Yeah. And, and I think this is a, a really challenging um, time for churches as we process this, because I think we, we, we come at it from two angles. You have some people that, that say, um, well, you're just letting the church be, in, be driven by culture. And I know we're not going to get into all of this, but, but then we have this other aspect of, God gifts people in certain ways and, and how do we help people use their gifts and, right. and what do we do? And, and I know we're running out of time here, but you know, when I look at some of those verses that the apostle Paul wrote in some of those letters, I think he was working within a cultural framework that is different than the cultural framework we have today. And, and you could argue, you could flip the argument and say, well, was Paul being driven by culture and what he did? And of course, of course, we're running out of time, so we're not going to be able to get this. But we're going to have to we're going to have to talk some more about this and dig into it a little deeper. So, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. I know you're still unpacking, and you guys are organizing your house, and you know that takes a long time to do. But um, any final any final thoughts? No, I just appreciate it, Ben. I'm just glad that that we're that our family can be together again. It's just. Uh, We've all gone different paths for so many years, and now we have an opportunity to to be closer together. Yeah. Fasten your (laughs) seatbelts. Hey, thank you for listening today. We're we're going to continue this discussion in a future episode very soon because we just scratched the surface. But thank you for being here. Until next week. Yeah, so I think that just cut me off. This is why I need a sound engineer. Anybody interested? The pay's not great, but hey, I can buy you coffee and take you to lunch every once in a while. All joking aside, thank you so much for listening. Until next week, when a new episode drops every Tuesday at 6 a.m. on your favorite podcast platform, keep living in wonder and take care.